And welcome to the penultimate episode of season two of Mother's Ruin. So coming up on today's show, we've got a bit about medicine and gin's effect on the human body. Yes, I I am well versed in every effect <laughs> the gin has on the human body. Yeah. From pleasantness to the devil's work. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, I am not experiencing today. No, luckily not. You look perky today. Yes. So that's good. Yeah, strong. Yeah, and we've got an interview coming up as well. Mm-hmm. Matthew went over to see Dobson and Parnell because they are... Um, One of the top places to drink gin in the world. Yeah, nominated for Best Gin Bar in the World. They're based in Newcastle, just around the corner, so um, Matthew popped down. Didn't make sense not to go along. No. And what a delight that the people there were. Yeah, so all that coming up. Drinks at the ready. Enjoy episode... 19. Yep. Paper straws only. Right then. What is all this about gin affecting the human body? Because I have, I have no idea what you Never mean. heard of this Never heard of it. Before. It's nothing but goodness, surely. Yeah, well, I wanted to look into the medicine cabinet today because over the course of its history, gin has had quite the fall from grace. It started out as a kind of miracle cure and ended up being seen as a deadly poison during the gin craze. And today we're going to look at the facts and myths behind its supposed effects on the body. I see. So modern science has boiled many of the myths down to a simple equation, which is that if you drink in moderation, you'll probably be fine. If you drink in excess, you'll probably get ill. If you drink in excess long term, you'll probably get long term health problems. Yes. Fact. Fact. But let's find out how we got to this place and uncover some of the urban myths that still exist today, as well as some of the, those that existed around the genesis of gin and around the height of its popularity. In genesis, some would say. The genesis, yes. Yeah, and the gin craze. Gin craze. So gin owes its early beginnings to the Middle Eastern alchemists. Now, I'm not going to talk too much about this because if you want to learn all about Middle Eastern alchemy and gin's early days... Yeah, we've covered, we've covered We've this. covered that in episode one, season so one. So if you didn't know one. that, why, why, why are you listening to this one? What's, what's your problem? Why are you listening to the order? That's just weird. God... Yeah, go back and listen to series one if you want to learn about the uh, early alchemists. But let's find out how gin made its way from here to the medicine cabinets of Europe. Now, one man who was instrumental in this process was the 13th century physician Arno de Villeneuve. Brilliant name. This, it sounds like a, it sounds like a. Uh... Centre-back for an 1986 World Cup squad. <laughs> yeah, there are some even better names coming up, so strap yourself in. Mm-hmm. Um, so spirituality and science met in his life's pursuit. He was a uh, physician, mm-hmm. but he was also a religious reformer. So he was quite interested in this kind of interplay between body and soul. And in fact, on the front door of his house, he had this um, little motif of a snake eating its own tail. Like the never-ending story. What? What? The never-ending story. What do you mean? Uh, the front of the book's got a snake entwined, eating its own tail. Interesting. Yeah, it's a great film, that. Well, it's interesting that that appears on the front of the never-ending story, because that's what this symbol means. Infinity. Infinity. The idea of 
ending and creation and transformation. It was used in ancient Egypt as a religious symbol, but it also became heavily associated with alchemy because the idea of alchemy being the process of transformation, mm -hmm. as well as having these kind of spiritual connotations to it. So It's probably the medieval snake keepers uh, guild emblem as well. Welcome to the guild. Where are, you, where are these from? Know. You haven't done a voice for you. Just sorry if you've missed Sarah's voices. I but did. I did a Nosferatu voice last week and got knocked down. That was correct. Yeah, it was dreadful. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure what that voice was. That's normally your wizards and goblins voice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um... De Villeneuve translated the works of the early alchemists Jabir and Rassiz, who we've talked about in previous shows, yep. and he developed their ideas. So he himself wrote about the process of distilling spirit from grain, then adding botanicals, um, essentially creating an early gin, really, Lots. for medical purposes. <laughs> yeah, strictly for medical purposes, Whoa. of course. He coined the term aquavita for spirit, which means water of life. Water of life. Yeah, and while ancient cultures used beer and wine as antiseptics, so it, alcohol had been used as Got a bad foot. Get us, get us a Pinot Grigio. Yeah, the Greeks used to pour wine into cuts. Mad. Yeah, but uh, De Villeneuve has been credited with bringing the practice of using alcohol as an antiseptic into kind of the mainstream of European medicine. Mm. The botanically infused spirit, i.e., gin or an early form of gin, mm -hmm. and medicine really came together two centuries later in the works of. Philippus, Ariolus, Theophrastus, Bombastus, von Hohenheim. That's the best name I've ever heard. Isn't it? Sounds like a rap lyric. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like an Eminem song. <laughs> <laughs> but thank God he was conveniently nicknamed Paracelsus. Paracelsus, that's a great name. I will refer to him as Paracelsus yeah. hereafter. Big P. Big P, yeah, <laughs> Big Daddy P. Big P. P-man. Which is probably um, apt given the diuretic qualities of alcohol. Very clever. Thank you very much. That was, uh, that was Sarah's joke. <laughs> that was her joke this, this episode. ever. <laughs> look, for, look forward to another one of them. <laughs> now Paracelsus subscribed to hermeticism, which is based on the principle that illness stems from humans being in spiritual disharmony with nature. Mm-hmm. Previously, um, this hermeticism had been kind of like a, almost like a religious interpretation of illness. So mm. if you're ill, it's because you've kind of fallen out of favour with the natural order, which, of course, is, is quackery. Now, Paracelsus developed that a bit further and made it a bit more scientific in that he proposed that this disharmony was not caused by spiritual factors, but by an imbalance of minerals in the body, specifically sulphur, mercury and salt. Now, salt represented the body itself, mercury represented the spirit, the imagination, morality and thought, mm -hmm. and sulphur represented the soul, feelings and desires. Mm -hmm. and this theory was known as tria prima, and with every disease, the symptoms depended on which of the three principles caused the ailment. So Paracelsus theorised that materials which are poisonous in larger doses may be curative in small doses, and he also believed that herbs shaped like certain body parts could cure an affliction of that particular body part. All right, so yeah. some, somebody's uh, Hendrix. Yeah. Pop a cucumber in. What are you trying to solve there? Oh, well, I wonder why you're a big fan of Hendrix. Uh, yeah, well... <laughs> well, it's, he's not wrong, is he? I have 
read things. I don't know how scientific they are, but they're like walnuts are good for your brain and like broccoli is good for your lungs. Carrots make you see in the dark. Fact. Carrots don't look like an eye. Either do if you slice them. <laughs> what, like a big round, fully orange eyeball? <laughs> yes. That, that, by that rationale, anything could look like an eye if you cut it in a round circle. Well, it is like a round circle, eye. a carrot. If you slice its midsection, looks like an eye. Tell you what. I'm going to turn up one day just with two carrots taped over my eyeballs and we'll see how natural that looks. Okay, well, we'll see how quickly it takes you to get there. Because <laughs> you've got two carrots on tape over your eyes. You'll never make it. Bird box. Oh, dear. So, in order to address these imbalances, Paracelsus started making all of these potions and really what these potions are were essentially spirits mixed with herbs so again early gins sneaky yeah now according to the writer richard bennett paracelsus may have died due to taking a little bit over enthusiastically to his own potions rutted yeah (laughs) i think he died in in a happy place shall we say and in his book the book of gin richard bennett goes on to quote the words of Hieronymus Braunschweig. <laughs> what a great... I know. Such good names. Yeah. Braunschweig's book, The Book of the Art of Distillation, published in 1500, says, and I quote, Spirit eases diseases coming of cold. It comforts the heart. It heals all old and new sores on the head. It causes a good colour in a person. It eases the pain in the teeth and causes sweet breath. It heals the short-winded. It's good in digestion and appetite and takes away belching. It mm. eases... Yeah. <laughs> Some minute, brown schweig. Eases the brown schweig. <laughs> Does ease the brown schweig. <laughs> Nothing worse than intense brown schweig. <laughs> it eases the yellow jaundice, the dropsy, the gout, the pain in the breasts when they're swollen, and heals all diseases in the bladder. It heals the bites of a mad dog, it gives courage in a young person, and causes him to have a good memory. A wonder drug, then, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, about six of them are absolute nonsense. Well, I mean, several of them are actually caused by <laughs> consuming too yeah. much alcohol. Liver jaundice, gout, memory loss. They're mad dogs biting you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we all know those nights when you go out and get bitten by a You're in a club, really central. (laughs) So this passage demonstrates quite the ignorance, really, when it comes to the actual dangers of drinking spirit. But I think what it does show is that spirit at this point was the kind of thing that would be taken in a small dram to cure an ailment. It wasn't drunk, really, recreationally. And I think it was only when it shifted from drug to recreational drink that the mood started to shift and the warnings started to pour in about the dangers of drinking gin. Mm. So Shakespeare's recurring character, Falstaff, uh, is a poster boy for the dangers of alcoholic excess. Now, he's not an aquavita drinker necessarily. He's probably more a, a... beer or a wine drinker but it's an interesting example he's a fat jolly knight he's always on the booze and critics think his name Falstaff is a play on the idea of brewer's droop as we call it or failure to perform sexually whilst under the influence of too much alcohol. This is the genius Shakespeare 
Doing doing floppy willy jokes. Listen, Shakespeare loved a willy joke. Like, he was the ultimate king of dick jokes. Don't even start that Shakespeare was the king of dick jokes when I'm sat here. <laughs> you owe everything <laughs> to that man. I owe nothing to Shakespeare apart from boredness at lessons. I'll read you some dick jokes later from Shakespeare. You'll, you'll eat your words. That's not a dick joke. <laughs> Now, there's another reference to alcohol-induced impotence in Macbeth. After the king's guards are too drunk to wake up when the king comes under attack, the, the porter remarks that alcohol provokes the desire but takes away the performance and makes men stand to and not stand to. Oh, Shakespeare, stop. <laughs> you little tinker. He used to call himself William the Conqueror when he was on the pole. Did he? Yeah. So after these early references to the idea of booze affecting a man's performance, shall we say, let's skip a couple of centuries later to the the gin craze. Now, the birth rate rate in London plummeted around the height of it, and impotence has been quoted as one of the factors. Mm -hmm. And while consuming large amounts of alcohol does indeed reduce the blood flow and that can therefore cause impotence, I looked this and found that at least one study has suggested that small amounts of alcohol can actually improve sexual function. Mm. A 2009 study, for example, by the University of Western Australia found that drinkers experience... <laughs> re- Australia. Yeah, mate, uh, if you drink, you're, you're a legend. <laughs> you're a fucking legend, mate. <laughs> Is that right? As an Australian scientist? Yeah, yes, I've got a white coat. <laughs> got a white coat. <laughs> I'm a scientist. <laughs> I'm a legend if I'm drunk. Okay, man. <laughs> we'll write that in this journal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Refute it if you will. But the study found that drinkers experienced rates of impotence 25 to 30% less than teetotalers. That's impressively less. It's mad. Yeah. Because I, I would obviously thought the other way around, yeah? Yeah. That's crazy. There you go. And another study in 2012 by French psychologists showed that participants who'd had a drink felt more confident in their attractiveness. So ah, that would explain a lot. <laughs> more legend. <laughs> no, this was a French study. Uh, 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 a legion. <laughs> That's French for legend, definitely. So... I'm not refuting Shakespeare's comments. I am. And I'm not refuting the public health warnings of the gin craze that drinking way too much can affect the male performance. But... I imagine 82 Mars bars would make you not feel that horny, though. Yeah, (laughs) exactly, yeah. Yeah. But I guess what what I'm saying is that we need to... um, We need to measure it against the fact that perhaps having a a little drink of gin... Mm -hmm. Does you no harm? A tincture. A tincture. Yes, just a light tincture. Just a light tincture of the old Jinzwani poos. <laughs> now, women were far from off the hook when it came to gin drinking in mm-hmm. the 18th century. In 1734, physician Stephen Hales warned of the dangers of what would much later become known as fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh-huh. Didn't have a name at the time. But he said, and I quote, We have two frequent instances where unhappy mothers habituate themselves to distilled liquors whose children, when first born, are often either of a diminutive pygmy size or look withered and old as if they'd numbered many years. I've seen loads of babies that look like little old men. Yeah, don't all babies look like little old men. (laughs) 
<laughs> tiny little Churchills. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but that's that's again that's the excessive thing, isn't it? Yes. Because I mean, I'm sure your mother was as well as my mother. See, a kind of stout or. A, a... My mum was anemic when she was pregnant with me, and the midwife told her to drink a pint of Guinness every day. Mm-hmm, there you go. Yeah. So yeah, but it was it was causing undersized babies to be born. But again, we're talking about massive excess. Oh, yeah, yeah, like a bottle of gin and ale or something like that oh, when you're yeah, pregnant. Oh, yeah. Yes. Now, with the 18th century also came one of the early descriptions of a gin-induced hangover. Uh-oh. Do you want to hear it? It was kind of in the form of a poem. His skull, instead of brains, supplied with cinder. <laughs> Could be that. <laughs> His nose turns all handkerchiefs to tinder. Mm, not sure if a fire... Fire raw heat out me nose. <laughs> Handkerchiefs and Tinder though, day after day after a night on the booze. Yeah, well, <laughs> pretty standard these uh, days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Love me. <laughs> <laughs> his stomach don't concoct, but bake his food. Yeah, you you can you can testify to that. <laughs> yeah, his liver even vitrifies his blood. His trembling hand scarce heaves his liquor in. Uh, have trouble drinking. Yeah, yeah. give you that. Yeah, his nerves all crackle under parchment skin. Mm, yeah, <laughs> but snap. <laughs> Continue. His guts from nature's drudgery are freed, and his bowels salamanders breed. <laughs> That's a bloody great line, though. <laughs> I can't quite work out what's happening here. Is he actually pooing? Yeah, himself? he's absolutely cacking him his pants. Eh? That's horrendous. <laughs> Salamander cacks. There's Actually, some... that's a great name. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Steve's Salamander Cax. You've <laughs> oh, seen going into the toilet the day after a hangover. What are you doing? I'm just freeing my guts from nature's drudgery. <laughs> <laughs> Be it like a salamander. <laughs> I wouldn't go there, mate. <laughs> There's a couple of salamanders on the loose. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I do apologise, this is a gin podcast. Yeah, I'm very, very posh. We've gone, uh, we've gone silly. But I think you'll agree that is quite an accurate depiction of how a hangover feels. 100%. But um, shall we actually look at what's going on inside the body when you have a hangover? Yes, that okay. will be a fascinating insight into what my body does <laughs> on Saturday and Sunday exactly. mornings. Exactly, let me, let me talk you through it. Now there was lots, when I looked this up, there was so much talk about specific chemical compounds and that kind of thing. I'm going to skip over a lot of that Good. and give you a potted explanation. So firstly, chemicals released when our bodies break down the alcohol cause a chain reaction that impair our normal bodily functions. Now one of these chemicals is called acetaldehyde, which is actually between 10 and 30 times more toxic than alcohol itself, which I think is really interesting that it's almost like... So alcohol makes your body make something much worse than poisonous. So essentially your body is poisoning itself in trying to break down the alcohol. Is that alcohol poisoning though? Yes. Oof. And it'll be a combination of this and the other factors that I'm about to um, mm. to explain. Now, some of us are predisposed to convert alcohol to acetaldehyde more quickly than others, which makes hangovers more unpleasant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, someone who says, well, he, he can't take his booze mm-hmm. um, or she can't take her booze. And that, that might just be the fact that somebody is genetically predisposed to produce more acetaldehyde and breaking down the alcohol. Does that mean they get drunk as quickly though? 
I don't know if it's linked to how quickly you might get drunk, but... That might be worth looking into for another episode. Yeah, I'll look into that. A good example of this is the fact that East Asian people are genetically predisposed to produce acetaldehyde more quickly. Really? Yeah. Now, another chemical called adenosine can also accumulate in the brain following alcohol consumption, and that's one of the factors that causes headache. So experiments have found that caffeine can actually block the action of adenosine, which could be why we drink coffee to ease a hangover. It's nothing bad. (laughs) Another factor, dehydration. Mm -hmm. Ethanol does have dehydrating qualities, and that is because of the increased urine production that Ah, causes diuresis, as in it's a diuretic. Uh, that can cause dry mouth, dizziness, may lead to electrolyte imbalances yeah. in your system. We're so, are we like a king after a drink? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And alcohol also stimulates the production of hydrochloric acid in the stomach, which can increase nausea. Snap that. Yeah. Check. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, low blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And imbalances of the immune system can also play a role in the development of hangovers. Nausea, headache and fatigue have been suggested to be particularly affected by changes in the immune system. Suppressed immunity is one of the key factors in hangovers. I see. So, so is that why you crave stodgy crap food as well? All this uh, stuff that it takes out your body, your body wants it back in. That would probably be more likely the the electrolyte imbalance caused by the dehydration, Mm. so you're wanting salts. Mm. Now, the final factor I want to talk about in relation to hangovers is a substance called congeners. Now, different alcoholic drinks contain different amounts of congeners, and in general, dark liquids have a higher concentration, while clear liquids have a lower concentration. Now, congeners are known to have a huge impact on how much of a hangover we have. So... That might be why, you know, you get people who say, oh, don't touch wine, gives me a terrible, don't touch red wine, gives me a terrible hangover. I've always said, oh, come on, it's it's a myth. Absolutely not a myth. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, basically the darker the alcoholic drink, the higher the likely concentration of hangover causing congeners. Now, that brings us nicely back to gin. So, as we know, uh, most gins are clear. Obviously, you've got your old Toms, you've got your Genevas that... You've got your yellow gins that might be darker in colour, but most of the gin we yeah. drink is, is clear. And for that reason, gin may well be far better if you want to avoid a hangover. Exactly. Well, I'll be honest, I've got to drink a lot of gin. A lot. So before I, I get a bad hangover. And yeah, you know, obviously we've got to factor in the strength of gin. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking volume for volume here. Mm-hmm. We're talking number of drinks for number of drinks yeah um but that aside if you want to avoid the hangover gin for health gin for health there you go new campaign if anyone wants to use that uh do get in touch yeah uh, gin for health tm, gin for health. TM. Right. Right. now so congeners explain why why the type of drinks we choose to consume affect how we feel the next day but what about mixing drinks I don't drink anything but gin. But no, I... you don't drink anything but gin. I sometimes have wine, for example. Wine. And people will often say to me, grape and grain, what are you doing? What about Osmos gin? True, it could be a grape gin that you're yeah. drinking. So yeah, let's say we want to have a glass of Osmos gin and we want to have a glass of Eden Mill and... Oh, 
should we mix them? Because mm-hmm. one is made from grape and one is made from grain. I think the phrase goes something like grape and grape or grain, but never the twain. Never the something. twain, something like that. It's absolute rubbish. Yeah. There is no evidence that mixing grape and grain-based alcoholic drinks will make you hungover any worse. But I did look into why people might have come up with this idea, because people talk about grape and grain, but then they also talk about things like beer, then wine, you'll feel fine, wine, then beer, you'll feel queer, or you know, something like that. So what I wanted to find out is when you're mixing your drinks... For example, you're mixing a grape drink or a grain drink, a gin and a wine, for mm-hmm. example. Does it matter which you drink first? I would think the best way to go would be strong to weak. You want to reach a peak and then settle it on that and plateau there. You don't want to like build and build and build so you're absolutely hammered by the end. You are absolutely correct. That's my theory yeah. and of course it's correct. Studies have corroborated that it's got nothing to do with grape first or grain first. It's more to do with the strength of the alcohol right that then. you're drinking. Yeah, there you go. And what if, if you are going to mix, say, a spirit with something weaker, like a beer or a wine, then yes, it's much better to start on the spirit. And the reason for that is that when alcohol levels in our blood are low, we tend to overestimate the amount of alcohol that we've we've drunk and when levels are high we underestimate it mm. so you're best to be sipping you know a, a wine spritzer at the end of the night when your judgment is impaired and you think you can take tons more mm. than at the beginning of the night when actually you probably can take quite a bit more so there you go and plus it's better to enjoy a nice glass of gin while your compass mentis yeah, 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 yeah. so go for the gin first Toss the wine out until maybe later in the evening. Until you need a spaghetti. Yeah, exactly. So there we go. I think we've we've debunked a few myths. We've learned a bit about how gin took its journey from medicine to poison. And now back to something in between. Yes, good old gin. I'm on the road. Yes. I'm going down the road, going left twice, forward four times. I've just got off the metro. Where am I going? Are you going to Dobson and Pinnell? I am going to Dobson and Pinnell. <laughs> One of the best gin bars in the world. Yeah, so you went to met them. Yeah, absolutely beautiful place. Yeah. I mean, the tasting place. It's one of those places where you'd feel a bit like, oh God, do I belong here? Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're not like me and you're just a normal human being. Unless you don't look like a caveman. Yes, lest you. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it was absolutely beautiful. The staff were nothing but helpful, and I uh, I interviewed Chris, and it was an absolutely brilliant interview. Well, let's let's find out what he said. Let's find out all about Dobson and Burnell. Right, well, I'm here at Dobson and Pennell on near the quayside in Newcastle. It's an absolutely beautiful eatery that has recently been nominated for one of the best places to drink gin in not the country, not the region, the world, on the entire planet. And I'm here with uh, Chris Hanna. Hello, Chris. Hi, how are you doing? And uh, what do you do here, Chris? So my official title is the bar supervisor. I supervise the restaurant as a whole when the manager's not here, but my main focus 
is developing cocktail lists in conjunction with our head chef Troy, um, our owner Andy, um, and everything goes through quite a rigorous process, which I've never really been used to in the past. Mm-hmm. Been in different places where I've kind of had free reign, it's something I found very challenging at first. But as time went on, mm-hmm. I've come to sort of appreciate the. Uh, finer aspects of it. We're actually in the process of doing a new cocktail list right now, mm. where we're maybe going a bit more um, classic with some of the parents. Yeah. Um, you know, thinking about that sort of 1920s um, cocktail bar. Kind yeah. Of I like idea. a swinging, I like a speakeasy. Yeah, not, not, nothing too... Nothing too in your face, though. Nothing where it's just thrown at you. It's more subtle. It's odd drinks here and there. Mm-hmm. We're keeping the best-selling drinks on there. We're keeping sort of core drinks that do well in the area. Cocktail-wise, what's your? What would you have? One hundred percent. You've got you. You've you've just bought a cocktail bar. One hundred percent. First gin-based cocktail that you would have. Vespa martini. A Vespa martini. Yeah. So it's two parts gin, one part vodka. That's all. Uh, Kinola Two parts gin. Um, and. Um, a lemon peel. Um, it is essentially the um, recipe that Daniel Craig gives to the bartender in Casino Royale. Yeah, um, not that I think I'm James Bond or anything. No, I mean, uh, but I, can I just say, can I just interject at this point that he is actually dressed like James Bond, <laughs> and he, he, he probably does think he is James Bond a little bit. But you know what? He, he's taking the time out to do this interview. Therefore, that is fine with me. He can dress how he wants. He could, he could be wearing a clown suit for all I care. <laughs> so this restaurant is—is is it? Um, is gin is gin one of the more popular drinks here? Because you have been nominated for one of the biggest yeah. awards. Going in gin, best place to drink gin in, in the world. So I think, um, in terms of uh, gins, I think you'd be silly not to be pushing gins on yes. your list anywhere. Um, just you know, because gin's the best. Fact. Well, it's so popular right now. Yeah. I mean, that, that trend took off, and it's never seemed to wane since. Everyone keeps saying, "Oh, it's going to be this drink next. It's going to be rum. It's going to be whiskey. It's going to be sherry." But gin still seems to be just staying top. You know, while that trend lasts, we're going to take that rag and bring it. Out <laughs> it's worth. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think that's just you know smart business. But yeah, it's something that we all do enjoy. We all like a gin. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say my next go-to cocktail would be a Negroni after a Vespa. Yeah. Again, it's got gin in it uh, with Campari and Martini Rosso in equal measures. So, you know, gin is something that we all seem to enjoy very much. And it's something that we put a lot of effort in with the list when we, you know, you don't come and say, I'll have a Hendrix and Tonic. We've got the specific list for us um, where, you know, we've paired it with certain tonics. Oh, yes, you have. Let's have a look. We've paired it. It's Mother's Ruin, it's called. Mother's Ruin section, yeah. What a yeah. idea. Andy was very proud of that name. It's a good name, though. Jack Cain's Gin. Where's that from? Jack Cain's is Northumberland, but I believe they're owned by Wylam now. So yeah, we've got a poetic license. What about favourites? Newcastle Gin. No, I did enjoy Newcastle Gin. Which one? Which one would you recommend on here? I like the Heppel. The Heppel. It's very classy. And oh, I we, love, we are a big fan of Heppel. Yeah, I love I love the Tangeray Ten. Yeah, uh, with the grapefruit and the juniper berries, it's it's a really classic pair and fever tree tonic in there. It's just yeah, it's amazing. But it's, everyone was there, everyone like with Hendrix, everyone was like, oh cucumber, what are you doing? Don't do that. Let me drink yeah, it now. The stuff that they're putting in gin, like I, like I said the other day, I tried black tomato gin. Mm-hmm. There was a, a gin, I think it's gin mache, the uh, the Mediterranean gin with I've not olives, tried that one. olives, and rosemary, thyme, and basil. It is beautiful. Absolutely yeah, everyone kind of went sort of. 
um, sort of peppery floral flavors, yeah. and now you're getting more savory herbaceous yeah. flavors coming through, and it's it's interesting to see now because that doesn't always work and you might think in your head oh it'd be great like that and then when they actually get it into fruition it doesn't actually quite work out so yeah. it's good to see that more unusual flavour profiles are now coming through because there's but not too fancy because the novelty value is a bit it's getting a yeah, bit too you, much you don't want to do um, yeah you, you just don't want to do that whole uh, fur coat no niggas yeah thing, exactly yeah. yeah what is the most popular gin here um, the Heppel sells like wildfire. Does it? Yeah, it sells really well. Excellent. Um, but it's it's funny to see what sells better as the seasons go on. Yeah. Um, so we've got the Larios Espanol on there. And the Larios Espanol sold really, really well over Christmas. And really? then we come into January and the sales are, you know, plateauing again. So mm-hmm. it's it's funny to see that. How That's odd, isn't it? It's just what, what takes people's fancy at the time um, I like the Larios mind uh, it's, it's good I think it's like the standard abroad isn't it yeah, like, uh, like that's, it's, their, it's, that's their Gordons it's, it's really funny the amount of people that have come in and uh, be like oh my god they've got Larios and <laughs> just you know from Spain yeah. from Italy, you know they've seen it oh my god they've got Larios and they'll get it straight away yeah. so um, it is yeah. it is a good gin. I've got yeah, Larios twelve in the house as yeah, well. Yeah, that's on the blue bottle. The blue bottle. That's that's nice that. Oh, yeah, it's really, it's really nice. good. Um, really, it's a good gin. Yeah, and uh, especially with their uh, orange pomegranate and Mediterranean tonic. Ooh, yeah, I'll have a bit it's of that. Good. Really. It's good. That sounds delightful. And they're all at six pound, which is very reasonable for yeah, a side. So um, we aim to do that just from a, a decent price point for a gin and tonic. Yeah. Um, with developing a new cocktail list, which should be coming soon. Um, it's we're looking to do the choice between singles and doubles. Yeah. Now, so you can get a twenty-five mil measurement gin or fifty mil, um, and it will be you know six pounds or roughly around that ten pound mark. Yeah. And that's with your tonic included, your garnish, yeah. everything's paired in the glass, stirred for you. Don't it? Right. So I'll give you one choice. You've got one gin that you're allowed to put on that menu that isn't there. What would you have? Uh, probably Roku. The rocket. Yeah, I've only recently tried it's it and come across it. It is. An it's a cool looking bottle. Um, it's a very well crafted, well designed, well refined flavored gin. It's just very sophisticated and classy. It is a delicious gin, isn't yeah. it? Like uh, we tried it the other day when we put a merchant's heart tonic in it. And it was yeah. just oh, like the gin itself when we tried it was warm and it was fuzzy. It was like oh, that's really tasty. And we tried it. That was it. Uh, is there anything? Is there any gins you're not keen on? Um, it's a loaded question, I know, because you've got to yeah, keep nice it with that. And, and you, you don't really want to like throw anyone under the bus for making something that... I'd, yeah, because they, they, they want to make yeah, that. Yeah, especially the smaller production ones. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that's kind of been made with love, especially. So yeah, you don't yeah, really want to be yeah. like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't like well, this, I don't like that. But one thing I would say is that, me personally, flavour-wise, I like a more classic... Flavored gin. I don't yeah. like anything too sweet. I don't like anything too spicy or aromatic. I yeah. like something where it's quite clean, um, slightly citrus. Yeah, I would say. Um, and I lean more towards that. Yeah. I find it more refreshing because uh, that's probably because I don't drink a lot of gin and tonics. Yeah. I prefer a gin martini or something See, along those lines. So I need a clean flavour. I need it crisp uh-huh. and dry. I like it dry. So, all the gins in the world. What's your What's your favourite? It's a toss-up between Heppel and Tangerine Number no. Ten. Yeah, so nice local gin. Yeah. And Tangerine Ten, which is 
obviously it's, a very high standard of achievement. Yeah, it's like a franchise, it's established. Yeah. Um, that was sort of my first go-to. You mm-hmm. know, you, you you dabble with certain things. I liked the Hendrix mm-hmm. and I liked, I liked this and I liked yeah. that. But the one I really taste, I went, oh, wow. If I see that in any bar, yeah. that's the one I go to. That That is Tanqueray. Big it's tall a, bottle. It's basically, cool. it's the chips of gin. <laughs> yeah, it's like you can't go wrong with you it. it. Uh, it's consistent. It's it's reliable. It's safe. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then there's Heppel, and again, their philosophy isn't a million miles away yes. from making a good, um, a good gin in its purest form. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, it's just nice to see that the that art form hasn't died and it's not gone completely sort of wild and wacky with all these weird flavour combinations some there are people that are still doing really good gin yeah. um, Heppel's advanced with technology rather than like flavours like, you know, yeah the compressor the compressor yeah, the CO2 it's blast it's insane and, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean it's for the good you know for yeah. the greater good now two weeks ago we did a gin and food mm-hmm. episode and we want, we asked a few chefs, but not not a lot of them got back to us. But <laughs> we asked a few chefs what how, what to pair gin with. Mm-hmm. Now, if you would serve a gin with food, what would the combination be? Because we stodgy food was what we had, like um, a heavier food. Yeah, because you, with gin being such a sort of a lot of them being so clean, mm-hmm. citrus driven, um, you're almost treating it like a palate cleanser. Yeah. So, like you say, you've got something that is big and flavoursome mm-hmm. um, so like a I don't know a sort of risotto with big flavours in there that's sticky mm-hmm. and claggy and it's not just the flavours it's the texture yeah a nice clean sort of gin and tonic or a gin martini mm-hmm. would cut right through that yeah um, it wasn't too long ago um, my friend popped in just sort of unannounced with his girlfriend one night and said like, oh you know I'm going to have the, the five course tasting menu and because my friend, I was like, I was, you know, I sort of a cocktail for you. Mm-hmm. And I'd done them a Vespa Martini and I used that as their sort of arrival palate cleansing yeah. drink. So I would always treat it almost like a, for loss of a better term, like a sorbet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what no, I mean? Yeah, like Where you have that in between sort of me. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really good uh, in terms of that. Um, I don't think gin will ever overtake wine oh god no no, no absolutely not no um i think, I think that's, that's wines that's wines uh one of my wines massive appeals yeah. isn't it right? yeah the uh the, the matching with food and it's like it's a classic it's like if you it's like the like james bond in it red wine with fish yeah <laughs> back to james again see <laughs> well Full uh, circle. absolutely delightful to meet you chris i really appreciate the time you've taken and um do come along to dobson and Pennell down by the quayside in, in newcastle and uh treat yourself Look, if you were tuning in just for gin news, we apologise and really? (laughs) But uh, yeah, get Google out. (laughs) Yeah, no gin news today. This episode has been quite the logistical nightmare to put together. I've had to just drive three hours to record one segment. If anyone has any spare violin music that want to send us, then feel free and I will play that (laughs) anywhere. It was a logistical nightmare, though, I understand. Yes, it was, and we've, we've had to very quickly record a segment. We've got an interview now 
and then Matt's got to go to work. So no gin news today. We'll have double gin news for you next week, we promise. Double if, promise. If there is enough gin news <laughs> yes, okay. for a double slot. Yeah, there's always enough for a double on this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, gin joke. Gin joke. <laughs> Hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. That was a funny one to, to It was. Record. Enjoyed that. And it is the last episode in the season. Next time. Next time. Yeah. So, so and also like uh, if you've got any ideas for us, if you've got anything you want to feature in, if you're if you're a gin distiller, if you're a gin collector, if you do anything involved with gin, do get in touch because season three is open to everything. We'll go on. Yes, indeed. Want more people involved? We want more sections. We want everything to do with gin involved in this podcast, which we love doing, and we are. Very pleased that people are enjoying. So thank you to all our subscribers, of course. Yes, thank you, and thank you for... Thank you to Dobson Pennell. Yes, big thanks to them. Thanks, Chris and the gang. And, uh, yeah, we hope to be spewing out of your speakers next week, too. (laughs) Mother's Room Podcast was written and performed by Matthew Reed and Sarah Dunley. Theme tune written and performed by Holly Jazz Kotsier. (laughs) 